Chapter thirty two, part three of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter thirty two Emperors Arcadius, Eutropius, Theodosius the second. Part three. Yet a reasonable doubt may be entertained whether any stain of hereditary guilt could be derived from Arcadius to his successor. Eudoxia was a young and beautiful woman who indulged her passions and despised her husband. Count John enjoyed, at least, the familiar confidence of the empress, and the public named him as the real father of Theodosius the Younger. The birth of a son was accepted, however, by the pious husband, as an event the most fortunate and honorable to himself to his family, and to the eastern world, and the royal infant, by an unprecedented favor, was invested with the titles of Caesar and Augustus. In less than four years afterwards, Eudoxia, in the bloom of youth, was destroyed by the consequences of a miscarriage, and this untimely death confounded the prophecy of a holy bishop, who, amidst the universal joy, had ventured to foretell that she should behold the long and auspicious reign of her glorious son." The Catholics applauded the justice of heaven, which avenged the persecution of St. Christosom, and perhaps the emperor was the only person who sincerely bewailed the loss of the haughty and rapacious Eudoxia. Such a domestic misfortune afflicted him more deeply than the public calamities of the East, the Ligensis excursions from Pontus to Palestine of the Usarian robbers, whose impunity accused the weakness of the government, and the earthquakes, the conflagrations, the famine, and the flights of locusts, which the popular discontent was equally disposed to attribute to the incapacity of the monarch. At length, in the thirty-first year of his age, after a reign, if we may abuse that word, of thirteen years, three months, and fifteen days, Arcadius expired in the palace of Constantinople. It is impossible to delineate his character, since, in a period very copiously furnished with historical materials, it has not been possible to remark one action that properly belongs to the son of the great Theodosius. The historian Procopius has indeed illuminated the mind of the dying emperor with a ray of human prudence, or celestial wisdom. Arcadius considered, with anxious foresight, the helpless condition of his son Theodosius, who was no more than seven years of age, the dangerous factions of a minority, and the aspiring spirit of Jezdegerd, the Persian monarch. Instead of tempting the allegiance of an ambitious subject by the participation of supreme power, he boldly appealed to the magnanimity of a king, and placed, by a solemn testament, the scepter of the East in the hands of Jezdegerd himself. The royal guardian accepted and discharged this honorable trust with unexampled fidelity, and the infancy of Theodosius was protected by the arms and counsels of Persia. Such is the singular narrative of Procopius, and his veracity is not disputed by Agathias, while he presumes to dissent from his judgment, and to arraign the wisdom of a Christian emperor who, so rashly, though so fortunately, committed his son and his dominions to the unknown faith of a stranger, a rival, and a heathen. At the distance of one hundred and fifty years, this political question might be debated in the court of Justinian, but a prudent historian will refuse to examine the propriety till he has ascertained the truth of the testament of Arcadius. As it stands without a parallel in the history of the world, we may justly require that it should be attested by the positive and unanimous evidence of contemporaries. 
The strange novelty of the event, which excites our distrust, must have attracted their notice, and their universal silence annihilates the vain tradition of the succeeding age. The maxims of Roman jurisprudence, if they could fairly be transferred from private property to public dominion, would have adjudged to the emperor Heronius the guardianship of his nephew, till he had attained, at least, the fourteenth year of his age. But the weakness of Honorius, and the calamities of his reign, disqualified him from prosecuting this natural claim, and such was the absolute separation of the two monarchies, both in interest and affection, that Constantinople would have obeyed, with less reluctance, the orders of the Persian than those of the Italian court. Under a prince whose weakness is disguised by the external signs of manhood and discretion, the most worthless favorites may secretly dispute the empire of the palace, and dictate to submissive provinces the commands of a master, whom they direct and despise. But the ministers of a child, who is incapable of arming them with the sanction of the royal name, must acquire and exercise an independent authority. The great officers of the state and army, who had been appointed before the death of Arcadius, formed an aristocracy, which might have inspired them with the idea of a free republic, and the government of the Eastern Empire was fortunately assumed by the prefect Athemius, who obtained, by his superior abilities, a lasting ascendant over the minds of his equals. The safety of the young emperor proved the merit and integrity of Athemius, and his prudent firmness sustained the force and reputation of an infant reign. Uldin, with a formidable host of barbarians, was encamped in the heart of Thrace. He proudly rejected all terms of accommodation, and, pointing to the rising sun, declared to the Roman ambassadors that the course of the planet should alone terminate the conquest of the Huns. But the desertion of his confederates, who were privately convinced of the justice and liberality of the imperial ministers, obliged Uldin to repass the Danube. The tribe of the Scyri, which composed his rear-guard, was almost extirpated, and many thousand captives were dispersed to cultivate, with servile labor, the fields of Asia. In the midst of the public triumph, Constantinople was protected by a strong enclosure of new and more extensive walls. The same vigilant care was applied to restore the fortifications of the Illyrian cities, and a plan was judiciously conceived which, in the space of seven years, would have secured the command of the Danube, by establishing on that river a perpetual fleet of two hundred and fifty armed vessels. But the Romans had so long been accustomed to the authority of a monarch, that the first, even among the females of the imperial family, who displayed any courage or capacity, was permitted to ascend the vacant throne of Theodosius. His sister, Pulcheria, who was only two years older than himself, received, at the age of sixteen, the title of Augusta, and though her favor might be sometimes clouded by caprice or intrigue, she continued to govern the Eastern Empire near forty years, during the long minority of her brother, and after his death, in her own name, and in the name of Marcion, her nominal husband. From a motive either of prudence or religion, she embraced a life of celibacy, and notwithstanding some aspersions on the chastity of Pulcheria, this resolution, which she communicated to her sisters Arcadia and Marina, was celebrated by the Christian world, as the sublime effort of heroic piety. In the presence of the clergy and people, the three daughters of Arcadius dedicated their virginity to God, and the obligation of their solemn vow was inscribed on a tablet of gold and gems, which they publicly offered in the great church of Constantinople. Their palace was converted into a monastery, and all males, except the guides of their conscience, 
the saints who had forgotten the distinction of sexes, were scrupulously excluded from the holy threshold. Pulcheria, her two sisters, and a chosen train of favorite damsels, formed a religious community. They denounced the vanity of dress, interrupted by frequent fasts their simple and frugal diet, allotted a portion of their time to works of embroidery, and devoted several hours of the day and night to exercises of prayer and psalmody. The piety of a Christian virgin was adorned by the zeal and liberality of an empress. Ecclesiastical history describes the splendid churches, which were built at the expense of Pulcheria, in all the provinces of the East, her charitable foundations for the benefit of strangers and the poor, the ample donations which she assigned for the perpetual maintenance of monastic societies, and the act of severity with which she labored to suppress the opposite heresies of Nestorius and Eutychus. Such virtues were supposed to deserve the peculiar favor of the deity, and the relics of martyrs, as well as the knowledge of future events, were communicated in visions and revelations to the imperial saint. Yet the devotion of Pulcheria never diverted her indefatigable attention from temporal affairs, and she alone, among all the descendants of the great Theodosius, appears to have inherited any share of his manly spirit and abilities. The elegant and familiar use which she had acquired, both of the Greek and Latin languages, was readily applied to the various occasions of speaking or writing, on public business. Her deliberations were maturely weighed, her actions were prompt and decisive, and while she moved, without noise or ostentation, the wheels of government, she discreetly attributed to the genius of the emperor the long tranquillity of his reign. In the last years of his peaceful life, Europe was indeed afflicted by the arms of war, but the more extensive provinces of Asia still continued to enjoy a profound and permanent repose. Theodosius the Younger was never reduced to the disgraceful necessity of encountering and punishing a rebellious subject, and since we cannot applaud the vigor, some praise may be due to the mildness and prosperity of the administration of Pulcheria. The Roman world was deeply interested in the education of its master. A regular course of study and exercise was judiciously instituted, of the military exercises of riding and shooting with the bow, of the liberal studies of grammar, rhetoric, and philosophy, the most skilful masters of the East ambitiously solicited the attention of their royal pupil, and several noble youths were introduced into the palace to animate his diligence by the emulation of friendship. Pulcheria alone discharged the important task of instructing her brother in the arts of government, but her precepts may countenance some suspicions of the extent of her capacity, or of the purity of her intentions. She taught him to maintain a grave and majestic deportment, to walk, to hold his robes, to seat himself on his throne in a manner worthy of a great prince, to abstain from laughter, to listen with condescension, to return suitable answers, to assume by turns a serious or placid countenance, in a word, to represent with grace and dignity the external figure of a Roman emperor. But Theodosius was never excited to support the weight and glory of an illustrious name, and, instead of aspiring to support his ancestors, he degenerated, if we may presume to measure the degrees of incapacity, below the weakness of his father and his uncle. Arcadius and Honorius had been assisted by the guardian care of a parent, whose lessons were enforced by his authority and example. But the unfortunate prince, who is born in the purple, must remain a stranger to the voice of truth, and the son of Arcadius was condemned to pass his perpetual infancy, 
encompassed only by a servile train of women and eunuchs. The ample leisure which he acquired by neglecting the essential duties of his high office was filled by idle amusements and unprofitable studies. Hunting was the only active pursuit that could tempt him beyond the limits of the palace, but he most assiduously labored, sometimes by the light of a midnight lamp, in the mechanic occupations of painting and carving, and the elegance with which he transcribed religious books entitled the Roman Emperor to the singular epithet of calligraphus, or a fair writer. Separated from the world by an impenetrable veil, Theodosius trusted the persons whom he loved. He loved those who were accustomed to amuse and flatter his indolence, and, as he never perused the papers that were presented for the royal signature, the acts of injustice, the most repugnant to his character, were frequently perpetrated in his name. The emperor himself was chaste, temperate, liberal, and merciful, but these qualities, which can only deserve the name of virtues when they are supported by courage and regulated by discretion, were seldom beneficial, and they sometimes proved mischievous to mankind. His mind, enervated by a royal education, was oppressed and degraded by abject superstition. He fasted, he sung psalms, he blindly accepted the miracles and doctrines with which his faith was continually nourished. Theodosius devoutly worshipped the dead and living saints of the Catholic Church, and he once refused to eat till an insolent monk, who had cast an excommunication on his sovereign, condescended to heal the spiritual wound which he had inflicted. The story of a fair and virtuous maiden, exalted from a private condition to the imperial throne, might be deemed an incredible romance, if such a romance had not been verified in the marriage of Theodosius. The celebrated Athenaeus was educated by her father, Leontius, in the religion and sciences of the Greeks, and so advantageous was the opinion which the Athenian philosopher entertained of his contemporaries, that he divided his patrimony between his two sons, bequeathing to his daughter a small legacy of one hundred pieces of gold, in the lively confidence that her beauty and merit would be a sufficient portion. The jealousy and avarice of her brothers soon compelled Athenaeus to seek a refuge at Constantinople, and with some hopes, either of justice or favor, to throw herself at the feet of Pulcheria. That sagacious princess listened to her eloquent complaint, and secretly destined the daughter of the philosopher Leontius for the future wife of the emperor of the East, who had now attained the twentieth year of his age. She easily excited the curiosity of her brother by an interesting picture of the charms of Athenaeus, large eyes, a well-proportioned nose, a fair complexion, golden locks, a slender person, a graceful demeanor, an understanding improved by study, and a virtue tried by distress. Theodosius, concealed behind a curtain in the apartment of his sister, was permitted to behold the Athenian virgin. The modest youth immediately declared his pure and honorable love, and the royal nuptials were celebrated amidst the acclamations of the capital and the provinces. Athenaeus, who was easily persuaded to renounce the errors of paganism, received at her baptism the Christian name of Eudocia, but the cautious Pulcheria withheld the title of Augusta, till the wife of Theodosius had approved her fruitfulness, by the birth of a daughter, who espoused, fifteen years afterwards, the emperor of the West. The brothers of Eudocia obeyed, with some anxiety, her imperial summons, but as she could easily forgive their unfortunate unkindness, she indulged the tenderness, or perhaps the vanity, of a sister, by promoting them to the rank of consuls and prefects. In the luxury of the palace, she still cultivated those ingenious arts which had contributed to her greatness, 
and wisely dedicated her talents to the honor of religion and of her husband. Eudocia composed a poetical paraphrase of the first eight books of the Old Testament, and of the prophecies of Daniel and Zechariah, a cento of the verses of Homer, applied to the life and miracles of Christ, the legend of St. Cyprian, and a panegyric on the Persian victories of Theodosius, and her writings, which were applauded by a servile and superstitious age, have not been disdained by the candor of impartial criticism. The fondness of the emperor was not abated by time and possession, and Eudocia, after the marriage of her daughter, was permitted to discharge her grateful vows by a solemn pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Her ostentatious progress through the East may seem inconsistent with the spirit of Christian humility. She pronounced, from a throne of gold and gems, an eloquent oration to the Senate of Antioch, declared her royal intention of enlarging the walls of the city, bestowed a denotive of two hundred pounds of gold to restore the public baths, and accepted the statues which were decreed by the gratitude of Antioch. In the Holy Land her alms and pious foundations exceeded the munificence of the great Helena, and though the public treasure might be impoverished by this excessive liberality, she enjoyed the conscious satisfaction of returning to Constantinople with the chains of St. Peter, the right arm of St. Stephen, an undoubted picture of the Virgin, painted by St. Luke. But this pilgrimage was the fatal term of the glories of Eudocia. Satiated with empty pomp, and unmindful, perhaps, of her obligations to Bulcheria, she ambitiously aspired to the government of the Eastern Empire. The palace was distracted by female discord, but the victory was at last decided by the superior ascendant of the sister of Theodosius. The execution of Paulinus, master of the offices, and the disgrace of Cyrus, praetorian prefect of the East, convinced the public that the favor of Eudocia was insufficient to protect her most faithful friends, and the uncommon beauty of Paulinus encouraged the secret rumor that his guilt was that of a successful lover. As soon as the empress perceived that the affection of Theodosius was irretrievably lost, she requested the permission of retiring to the distant solitude of Jerusalem. She obtained her request, but the jealousy of Theodosius, or the vindictive spirit of Pulcheria, pursued her in her last retreat, and Saturninus, count of the domestics, was directed to punish with death two ecclesiastics, her most favored servants. Eudocia instantly revenged them by the assassination of the count, the furious passions which she indulged on this suspicious occasion seemed to justify the severity of Theodosius, and the empress, ignominiously stripped of the honors of her rank, was disgraced, perhaps unjustly, in the eyes of the world. The remainder of the life of Eudocia, about sixteen years, was spent in exile and devotion, and the approach of age, on the death of Theodosius, the misfortunes of her only daughter, who was led a captive from Rome to Carthage, and the society of the holy monks of Palestine, insensibly confirmed the religious temper of her mind. After a full experience of the vicissitudes of human life, the daughter of the philosopher Leontius expired, at Jerusalem, in the sixty-sixth year of her age, protesting, with her dying breath, that she had never transgressed the bonds of innocence and friendship. The gentle mind of Theodosius was never inflamed by the ambition of a conquest, or military renown, and the slight alarm of a Persian war scarcely interrupted the tranquillity of the East. The motives of this war were just and honorable. In the last year of the reign of Jezdegerd, the supposed guardian of Theodosius, a bishop, who aspired to the crown of martyrdom, destroyed one of the fire-temples of Susa. 
His zeal and obstinacy were revenged on his brethren. The Magi excited a cruel persecution, and the intolerant zeal of Jezdegerd was imitated by his son Varanus, or Bahram, who soon afterwards ascended the throne. Some Christian fugitives, who escaped to the Roman frontier, were solemnly demanded, and generously refused, and the refusal, aggravated by commercial disputes, soon kindled a war between the rival monarchies. The mountains of Armenia, and the plains of Mesopotamia, were filled with hostile armies, but the operations of two successive campaigns were not productive of any decisive or memorable events. Some engagements were fought, some towns were besieged, with various and doubtful success, and if the Romans failed in their attempt to recover the long-lost possessions of Nisibis, the Persians were repulsed from the walls of a Mesopotamian city, by the valor of a martial bishop, who pointed his thundering engine in the name of St. Thomas the Apostle. Yet the splendid victories which the incredible speed of the messenger Palladius repeatedly announced to the palace of Constantinople, were celebrated with festivals and panegyrics. From these panegyrics the historians of the age might borrow their extraordinary, and perhaps fabulous, tales of the proud challenge of a Persian hero, who was entangled by the net, and dispatched by the sword, of Aerobindus the Goth, of the ten thousand immortals who were slain in the attack of the Roman camp, and of the hundred thousand Arabs, or Saracens, who were impelled by a panic terror to throw themselves headlong into the Euphrates. Such events may be disbelieved or disregarded, but the charity of a bishop, Acacius of Amida, whose name might have dignified the saintly calendar, shall not be lost in oblivion. Boldly declaring that vases of gold and silver are useless to a god who neither eats nor drinks, the generous prelate sold the plate of the church of Amida, employing the price in the redemption of seven thousand Persian captives, supplied their wants with affectionate liberality, and dismissed them to their native country, to inform their king of the true spirit of the religion which he persecuted. The practice of benevolence in the midst of war must always tend to assuage the animosity of contending nations, and I wish to persuade myself that Acacius contributed to the restoration of peace. In the conference which was held on the limits of the two empires, the Roman ambassadors degraded the personal character of their sovereign, by a vain attempt to magnify the extent of his power, when they seriously advised the Persians to prevent, by a timely accommodation, the wrath of a monarch, who was yet ignorant of this distant war. A truce of one hundred years was solemnly ratified, and although the revolutions of Armenia might threaten the public tranquillity, the essential conditions of this treaty were respected near fourscore years by the successors of Constantine and Artaxerxes. Since the Roman and Parthian standards first encountered on the banks of the Euphrates, the kingdom of Armenia was alternately oppressed by its formidable protectors, and in the course of this history, several events, which inclined the balance of peace and war, have already been related. A disgraceful treaty had resigned Armenia to the ambition of Saper, and the scale of Persia appeared to preponderate. But the royal race of Arsaces impatiently submitted to the house of Sassan, the turbulent nobles asserted or betrayed their hereditary independence, and the nation was still attached to the Christian princes of Constantinople. In the beginning of the fifth century, Armenia was divided by the progress of war and faction, and the unnatural division precipitated the downfall of that ancient monarchy. Chosros, the Persian vassal, reigned over the eastern and most extensive portion of the country, while the western province acknowledged the jurisdiction of Arsaces, 
and the supremacy of the emperor Arcadius. After the death of Arsaces, the Romans suppressed the regal government, and imposed on their allies the condition of subjects. The military command was delegated to the count of the Armenian frontier, the city of Theodosiopolis was built and fortified in a strong situation, on a fertile and lofty ground, near the sources of the Euphrates, and the dependent territories were ruled by five satraps, whose dignity was marked by a peculiar habit of gold and purple. The less fortunate nobles, who lamented the loss of their king, and envied the honors of their equals, were provoked to negotiate their peace and pardon at Persian court, and returning with their followers to the palace of Artaxata, acknowledged Chosros for their lawful sovereign. About thirty years afterwards, Artaxeres, the nephew and successor of Chosros, fell under the displeasure of the haughty and capricious nobles of Armenia, and they unanimously desired a Persian governor in the room of an unworthy king. The answer of the Archbishop Isaac, whose sanction they earnestly solicited, is expressive of the character of a superstitious people. He deplored the manifest and inexcusable vices of Artaxeres, and declared that he should not hesitate to accuse him before the tribunal of a Christian emperor, who would punish without destroying the sinner. Our king, continued Isaac, is too much addicted to licentious pleasures, but he has been purified in the holy waters of baptism. He is a lover of woman, but he does not adore the fire or the elements. He may deserve the reproach of lewdness, but he is an undoubtable Catholic, and his faith is pure, though his manners are flagitious. I will never consent to abandon my sheep to the rage of devouring wolves, and you would soon repent your rash exchange of the infirmities of a believer for the specious virtues of a heathen. Exasperated by the firmness of Isaac, the factious nobles accused both the king and the archbishop as the secret adherents of the emperor, and absurdly rejoiced in the sentence of condemnation, which, after a partial hearing, was solemnly pronounced by Bahram himself. The descendants of the Arsaces were degraded from their royal dignity, which they had possessed above five hundred and sixty years, and the dominions of the unfortunate Artaxeres, under the new and significant appellation of Persarmenia, were reduced to the form of a province. This usurpation excited the jealousy of the Roman government, but the rising disputes were soon terminated by an amicable, though unequal, partition of the ancient kingdom of Armenia, and a territorial acquisition, which Augustus might have despised, reflected some luster on the declining empire of the younger Theodosius. End of chapter 32, part 3